You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Tacoa Hash. Tacoa is the founding partner and creative director of the Technique Group, one of the few Black-owned creative talent agencies in the country. Now, Tacoa is not just another guest of the show. She's a sister friend who was instrumental in my foray into the entertainment business over the course of my legal career. But back to Technique. Technique has represented some of the most notable beauty industry professionals in the game. And before we get into how Tacoa garnered clients like Mona Me Entertainment, Viacom, ABC, and NBC Universal, we must talk about her origin story. So this week's episode is just part one, where we discuss Tacoa's upbringing as a pastor's daughter her journey from North Carolina to Detroit to New York, and how she cut her teeth as a makeup artist at MAC. After an industry gig paid her more in one day than a week at MAC, Tacoa officially caught the bug. She eventually landed on the hit TV show Ambush Makeover as a key makeup artist, but you know it wouldn't be a 26er story if the rest was history. Before Tacoa and her business partner Yanis built Technique into a seven-figure beauty and lifestyle management firm with offices in both New York and Atlanta and more than 75 creative artists on the roster, there were many twists and turns. So let's go ahead and start at the beginning. Without further ado, please enjoy. Tacoa, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? Delisha, what took you so long? <laughs> okay, first of all, you're starting already, right? No, the question should be, what took you so long? Listen, I've been hearing about December 26th from the very beginning of our friendship. Yes, so forever. And then I think this is what happened. So we were doing in-person um, interviews first with no video. You were still running around New York City and Brooklyn and being generally fabulous and industrious. You're so so we, couldn't pin, we couldn't pin you down. Then you moved, left me, and moved to Georgia. Can you believe it? I still can't believe it. I'm you still either. very sad. So then we were trying to wait until you were in town. And then you came to town a couple of times, but I had no time for me. Um, and then now that we're stuck at home, we said, you know what? Forget it. We're just going to do it virtually since we're doing everybody virtually. That's what happened. Yes. Well, you know, divine timing. That's what we want in our life, right? Absolutely. Um, so this doesn't feel like an interview because we're like sisters. We know each yeah. other very well. Um, we can get into this later about how you end up weaved into every speaking engagement that I do, every talk, because you're such an integral part of my story and my journey. Um, I don't name you, but, you know, because I don't want people hitting you up for the same <laughs> hookups that I got. Um <laughs> I'm out of that business. <laughs> yes. But um, so this feels like just a sister girl conversation. I was telling you before we press record, this is the first interview in like maybe two years that I haven't had any notes for because I already know, you know, yes. where this is going. It's going to yes. be juicy. I got you ready? Chills. I got chills. Yes, I'm ready. And don't start crying because, you know, oh, you, you know, know, I got my <laughs> tissues. OK, I have a box of tissues at every corner of my house. OK, because the tears just come. Because, you know, you probably cry. But anyway, we'll see what happens. Now this is about you. This is not about me. So let's get into it. I'm not used to that. I know. Especially when it comes to you, because I believe in you so much. You're such a dynamic, down-to-earth, powerful, spiritual, say what you mean and mean what you say type of sister that I just, I know your work is just 
so great in this life and I just always wanted to be a part of it. So it's, it's, this is different when you're interviewing me and I'm not like holding your purse, crying tears when you open your mouth at a speaking engagement. And this is why I love you, boo. But you, you are the resident crier at every speaking engagement. Well, girl, I'm not, I, you know, I do cry easily, but I cry on purpose. It has to mean something. So it's not just like, I'm just out here filling tears for no reason. You know, even when people don't understand my tears, I know that it's coming from a place of, I get it. I understand. I'm inspired by it. So, you know, I used to get upset about the fact that I cry so easily and they're already in my eyes, but I know it's a part of my gift and my charm to feel. And, you know, I'm okay with it now. As you should be. I feel like you've come into your own so much um, like I'm so I miss I miss you terribly, but like I feel like the relocation was so so good for you and the way that your life has flourished and all the changes. Um, I'm just really excited. We're jumping like 42 yeah. steps ahead. All right, let's back up. Let's okay. back up. All right, yeah. who is Tekoa Hash? Tekoa Hash is a divine spiritual warrior, creative being that wants to see the best in all things and all people. And basically, that's how I built technique is I see goodness in people and I want to help them break through those barriers. And I've been able to do that. And, you know, it's been a hard experience. When I look back on it, it's been very rewarding to know that I have had a part in seeing something great in people and being able to have a part in their you know, trajectory in their careers or their personal lives. And I know that you have had impact on people in all of those areas. Um, and I, and I, because I know how hard won everyone is for you, when I see the technique agency in the credits on TV, you know, when I see that, I'm like, because I know the beginning, um, that's what makes it all the more sweet. And knowing mm-hmm. so much of your story and our similar upbringings and the faith and all of that, um, that's what makes it like, you know, this, this people have no idea what has gone on behind the scenes. Yeah. Let's not, I'm not going to bury the lead here. The technique agency was client number one at the law office of Delisha J. Grant, PC. That, is, <laughs> that means a lot. <laughs> Thank you for dealing with us and not knowing what the hell we're doing in this business and not having the finances to afford you and still believing in us and all of that good stuff. Like, Client number one. Wow. Client number one, man. That the day the lights came on, the technique agency was the only client wow. at the beginning. Um, so so this interview was extra special and and extra sweet. But let's 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 start from the beginning. But let's talk about your your upbringing. Take me back. Tell me how you how you grew up. So um I I was the surprise child. I don't want to say I was an accident because we know that's not possible if I'm on this earth. Um, but I definitely was a surprise child. My siblings are 21, 20, and 10 years older than me. So my mom damn sure, damn sure thought she was done having kids. And I came along and my, my siblings are Catherine, Keith, and Kevin, and I'm Tacoa. So it's a sign of the times close to the eighties where people get, you know, creative with names, but it's actually a biblical name. It's, it's Hebrew. It's a province in Israel. It means city of triumph. Um, it means to sound a loud alarm. And I think I do all of that. I, I, you know, I triumph through adversities. I triumph through um, pursuing my goals. I triumph through believing in the people that I believe in. And I'm definitely loud. So 
I think it fits. Um, you know, I grew up with um, a mother that was um, Presbyterian and she married into a family that was Pentecostal. And, you know, I think that was a big challenge for her because one, I'm the most like my mom, if I could say, she is a free spirit and a creative individual. But I, I can honestly say if it would not be for the Pentecostal family that she um, married into, she would not still be alive. That family definitely saved her life. It taught her about relationship with God and believing and confessing and having faith. And my mom's faith is through the roof it or it always has been. And because of her, I have that faith. There's like really nothing that I think that I can't do. Yes, of course, I have those thoughts in my mind of what's not possible, but I literally was born into a family that believed that anything was possible. And, and she fed, she fed me that, like she told me I can do anything. And she did not allow, you know, us being in the spotlight and, you know, a smaller community, but being a big church family, allow it to put limitations on me. And she always encouraged me, wear the bold red lipstick, wear the tight dress. You know, yes, be, be respectful of yourself, but you're not going to be limited by what these people think you should be because you're a preacher's daughter. Um, and she exposed me to the arts. You know, anytime she thought I was good at something or saw that I had interest in something, she would find a way to at least give me a mentor or let me take a class to do you know, things to help me figure out who I was. So when I decided to um, move to New York, she was like, hell yeah, go. And and you can have my car. Come down mm -hmm. south, because I was living in Detroit at the time. She was like, come come get my car. You can take the, take the car to New York. You know, you can do it, you know. And and she, she supported me in, in my endeavors. And when I moved to New York, thinking, like I told my parents, I'm going to finish my education in New York. But in my mind, I wasn't really sure if I was what I wanted to do. Like, I'm like, okay, I don't know. But yeah, I'm going to go to school. Um, but I was working at the mat counter and she supported me in that venture. And, and even though then it didn't seem um, possible to have a career as a makeup artist. And I don't even think I knew that then. I just knew that I was supposed to be in New York. And I knew that from a very young age. When I was 13, my mom let me go to New York um, with a client of hers. And my mom worked um, as a hairstylist. So she owned hair salons. And one of her clients became a friend. And she was from New York. And I wanted to go. And she said, yes. Yeah. So I flew to New York by myself. I took a cab from LaGuardia to the Bronx by myself. And none of that was scary to me at 13 years old. Like it just felt natural. And I knew then I wanted to live there. Um, so, you know, fast forward to not doing that well in college and, you know, changing paths and moving to Michigan when I decided to move to New York, which was always in my mind. Um, she supported me. And, um, She's always just told me to just believe in myself. And, and I'm grateful for that. You know, I think that having a conservative father and out-of-the-box thinking mother was a good balance for me. Um, you know, and as much as, you know, when I think about my career paths and all the different things that I thought I wanted to do, I definitely was like, I am not going to be a preacher. Uh-huh. I am not going to be a first lady. Uh-uh. I don't like what my mama's had to put up with. And I am not going to work in a hair salon. And when I look at my life now, I am 
a piece of both my parents, you know, like I'm leaning more into my spirituality and no, I don't think it's in the church and no, I don't think it's in the pulpit, but I can't deny, you know, that calling on my life. And I'm okay with that now. I don't know what that looks like. And me and you talk about this, you know, in our sister girl conversations, but I am at a place in life where I am okay with embracing what I got from both sides of my family. Mm -hmm. Well, tell me the town you grew up in. Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Yes. You know, I'm just doing this for the the listeners' benefit. So, you know, I I met you. You were already living in New York at the time. We can get into that later. Um, But I knew you were from North Carolina. I knew you were a PK. You know, I heard all the stuff about your your family. And I knew you was like New York Tacoa. So I remember you were like, my mom's coming to visit. (laughs) Let's, you know, go to church. You can meet my mom. We can hang out, what have you. And so I'm thinking like this preacher's wife coming from North Carolina. I was like, oh boy, you know, and I grew up in this. I know how to act. Right. But I remember what I expected. (laughs) And then I remember what I got. And I was like, oh, this is just Tacoa 30 years Uh from now, 40 Uh years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just a complete free spirit and and so encouraging of everyone. And like Mm -hmm. a believer of dreams Mm -hmm. says what she feels and all that great stuff. Um, And so I've never met your dad, but I always wonder like what the other, the alpha to the omega is, is like, you know, he is, my dad's birthday was yesterday. Um, My dad is very charismatic. He is a Leo. So he feeds into that stereotypical preacher of, I like attention. Mm -hmm. He likes attention. But he's so loving and so giving and, and so positive and very easygoing. I would definitely, you know, I don't know who's going to hear this, but mama wore the pants in the house because my daddy was just, you know, so sweet and he's so sweet and passive. And my mama is very like, this mm-hmm. is what it's going to be. And, you know, but the thing is, she didn't know she was marrying a preacher. You know, you know, she calls it a shotgun wedding. Like, you know, you get pregnant. You don't have a choice. Like you're getting married, you know? Right. And they were teenagers. So she didn't know that this, this is the life that she was choosing. It was chosen for her from a decision that she made to have sex, right? Mm-hmm. But it saved her life. And, I, and she says it all the time. She gives my, my dad's parents all the credit for her spiritual journey and for loving God and reverencing him. And, you know, my mom has always been dedicated to uh, ministry and people but she was just not with the politics and, right. you know, hard for my dad because he goes by the book, but good for my mom because she's reaching the people or, 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 you know, a specific people that understand her way of thinking, you know? So, um, I think it was a good match, even though they just, you know, can you imagine having to be married to the first person you had sex with? Can you imagine that? <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> First of all, why are you trying to put my business in the street? This, I'm this trying is... to even remember who the first person I had sex with to even see. I don't even know. This is the realest <laughs> December 26th interview. Well, yeah. Can you imagine? That's what happened. But it saved her life. I know. Yeah. I know it did. You know, it gave her substance. And I'm not saying a Presbyterian church is wrong. But I don't know that they teach relationship with God. Right. The relationship right. with God is what saved my mom's life. Not what the book said and what the rules said. That's not what saved her life. It was her knowing and someone teaching her, like, this is how you have a relationship with God, you know? And that saved her life. Not not the Pentecostal church, but the relationship with God. And what I love about your mom is that she didn't, so many women, preachers' wives in general, but particularly in the Pentecostal faith, 
so many women lose themselves in that wife role of, I have to be meek and humble and I have no say, and I can't preach and I can't do this and I can't wear pants. And I, you know, and she, she found a way to be her yeah. in that. And I'm sure a lot of people didn't like it, uh, but she stood in her individuality and her uniqueness and rejected the dogma while yeah. having the relationship, which is the very definition of courage. And people who, we've talked about it a lot during quarantine. We just had a number of people who've been in the Pentecostal faith who really get it. But if you didn't grow up in that, you don't know how much courage it takes yeah. and how much criticism and ridicule um, and, and that can come with not abiding by all the rules, Yeah, right? That's such a huge part. They can't separate the relationship from the rules. Well, so for her to do that is is commendable. It is. It is, but it also allowed her to reach people that my daddy couldn't reach. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? That him and his way of thinking couldn't reach. And not saying that they didn't have similar mindsets, but she was able to understand people that maybe he didn't understand. Um, and, you know, to hear the testimonies of people that says, if it wasn't for your mom, if it wasn't for your dad, like, you know, like um, one of their longest uh, presiding leadership over a church Everyone, it was a small community. And and literally 90% of those kids um, that went to that church from babies graduated from college and are professionals. Mm-hmm. And my mom would take them on college tours. She would tell them to apply for college. She didn't even graduate from high school. She went mm-hmm. back and got her GED, but she didn't graduate from high school because she had two kids before she was 18. Um, but they always say, like, if it wasn't for your mom, I wouldn't went to college. I wouldn't even thought that was an option. And now they're all professionals. And it's beautiful that, you know, that she's able to see that impact that she made on them while she's still on this earth. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I wanted to delve into that because I see so much of your parents in you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we need to set that foundation because I think it, it sets the stage for what you've become. Right. And, and your anointing and how that manifests in the industry. Um, which we're going to get to. But since you brought up college, let's talk about that. Because you went from Winston-Salem to an HBCU, right? I did not. So, okay. But you hear me talk about HBCUs a lot and you hear me, you know, be proud of HBCUs. I only applied to HBCUs. Okay. Only. I knew I wanted to go to um, a predominantly Black institution. Uh, but at the time... Um, that it was time for me to go to college. My mom has always, and and I wanted to say this, like she was not a stay-at-home wife. My mom was oftentimes the breadwinner in our family Um, in terms of, now I don't know if she paid the most of the bills, but she definitely made the most of the money, right? Mm -hmm. So because she owned hair salons and she was booming um, with that business. And um, so um, I, I knew I wanted to go to an HBCU. I, 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 Spelman was my first choice. Hampton was my second choice. I applied to Morgan because that's where my mom said she wanted to go. I just did that out of faith for her. You know, A&T, which I call myself an honorary Aggie. Like, I only applied to HBCU. That's why I think you went to HBCU because you're no, like an Aggie. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I'm an honorary Aggie. I didn't go there. Um, but when it was time for me to go to college, my mom had... Um, a very serious freak accident and almost lost her hand. It was almost severed. So as a hairstylist, that's your business. Like, you know, so when it was time for me to go to college, finances were not stable in our household. Um, And I worked um, a part-time job at a grocery store called Harris Teeter. And one of my managers came to me one day. It was like, hey, they're giving out scholarships to UNC Charlotte. You should apply. And I'm like, okay, I'll apply. 
And so I came home that day. I was like, my manager said I should apply. And my mom said, apply today. She was like, I just sold the biggest seed. I forget what ministry she sold it to. I want to say Kenneth Hagen, but I don't remember. It was one of those ministers that we probably don't read or spend right now. But mm-hmm. <laughs> she was like, apply today. I just sold the biggest seed I've ever sold. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to apply. So I got a scholarship. I got a full $50,000 scholarship to UNC Charlotte. And I knew my parents would have allowed me to go to any school that I wanted to. And I think, you know, at the end of my senior year in high school, I was leaning more towards Hampton than Spelman. I kind of did not want to live in Atlanta at that time. I I grew up real fast and I was real fast and I was already partying in Atlanta my my whole high school year. So I was kind of over Atlanta. So I'm like, okay, Hampton. So, um, you know, I just knew that my family was in a financial situation that I could not turn down a full scholarship. So I just kind of threw it out the window to go to an HBCU because it's like, I got a free ride. I'm going to UNC Charlotte. And I just, I just knew that that's what I was supposed to do. When you finish high school, you go to college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I think at the time thinking that I'm trying not to be a minister, but I want to help people. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to major in psychology. You know, I'm helping people still, but I ain't got to be in the church helping people. And when I got to college, the school was way too big for me. I wasn't focused and I didn't know what I was there for. So it's very hard to stick to something where you don't know what goal you're working towards. Um, And that's why I tell so many young people, maybe go to a community college for the first two years so you can get an idea. I'm not a collegiate. I'm not a scholar like you, Delisha. I just knew that was what I was supposed to do. And, you know, I knew that I had emotional intelligence and creative intelligence, but school was never like my forte. And I was just completely lost. Um, and I finished three years there and I was just like, I can't take no more. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it. I'm lost. I don't know what I'm doing here. And at that time, my parents were taking a church assignment in another state. And I'm like, well, what am I staying in North Carolina for? Like, if y'all leaving, I'm leaving too. And that's when my god sister and her husband um, were moving to Detroit. And I said, oh, they asked me to come and be their nanny because they had three small children. They were both career people. They're like, we'll, we'll pay for you to go to school in Michigan if you come and help us with the kids. And it was the perfect out for me. It was like a no brainer. Like I was already trying to figure out how to get out of North Carolina, but with my parents' blessing. And that's how I got out of North Carolina. But I was completely lost in school. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. have to listen to the advice of, you know, people that I thought didn't know what they were talking about. But like, really hang around the people that are going places that you want to go. Don't hang around people that make you okay with skipping class, not studying, you know, getting into riffraff. And that's what I lean more to. So people that will make me comfortable in my comfort zone instead of, you know, pushing me to be my best self. I was so lost in school. And and I think it's still a problem for me too. I'm not completely over that I, I messed up an opportunity to have a degree for free. And, you know, I've been talking about that a lot just off air with with friends and colleagues um, about how you can reach a level of success. You can be beloved in your chosen field, you know, and you can be making moves and advancing. But going back to the thing you didn't finish mm-hmm. um, and having insecurity about that or guilt with that, which I think is just 
kind of key to being a 26er. We're finishers. We want to yeah, finish, right? Yeah. Even if even if you decided I never would use my degree, even though you use it every day, I think, in the work that you do. Um, but sure. it's this, yeah, it's this thing of like, I did not complete that task, right? And I think that's an individual analysis to decide, can I extend grace to myself and let go of that? Or do I need to finish so that I can find peace? I am what's what's the answer for you? I I um Honestly, I don't think I have the discipline. And you see how hard it was for us to get on this Chrome situation. Okay. I don't know if I have the discipline or the time to do it anymore. The fact that I brought it up, that means I'm not over it. Right. I mm-hmm. can say whatever, but it's still, it's, it's like, girl, you really up $50,000 and didn't get the degree. And it wasn't even that hard. I just wasn't focused. And I didn't have like a goal. I didn't have a goal in mind to make me want to finish. I was just going through the motions. So, right. And this, and I'm glad you brought up the community college thing because there's this like concept that if you go to community college, you couldn't cut it or, you know, like it's a second choice. Yeah. And a lot of people I know who did community college first came out of school with a lot less debt. Hello. You know, and are in the same seat next to the people who did who went straight to a four year yeah. school. It's a great stepping stone um, and it, it allows you to to progress, but also figure out what it is that you absolutely want. And I think we need as a community, we need to stop with this idealized view that everybody has to follow a certain path. Yeah. Everybody's not going to go to Clark Atlanta first or Howard yeah. first or at Ivy. Some people need to go to the local school, kind of sort it out, grow up a little bit, figure out what they want. And that's okay. And save a lot of money in the yeah. process. I definitely should have. I would have, I think just, you know, the school was just way too big for me. UNC Charlotte is, God, it was, if it was huge in the nineties, I can't even imagine what it is now. I know it's way bigger now, but it was too big for me. And I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for all of that responsibility, even though I've always been independent and, you know, my mom didn't really have to check on me to do what I needed to do. Like having all of that independence at 18 was too much for me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So you end up in Michigan. I ended up in Michigan. Yeah. So far cry from North Carolina. But I loved it. It was great for me. So um, my god sister and her husband were great mentors to me and they have been in my life since I think me and being in the fourth grade and they were a younger couple, but they were established couple. Like, you know, they did it the right way. They went to college. They got good jobs. They honored their finances. They had children and they um, didn't play the fiddle with me. You know, my mom and dad a little bit more passive with my bullshit, but they didn't. They called me on it and they held me accountable. And, you know, I got to see what it was like for, you know, another black family to live outside of what I had seen in my life. And it was, it was a positive experience. Like I never wanted to disappoint them. So I always did my best and they were always there to support me. Um, Jerry and Taz love them dearly to this day. Um, and I'm so grateful for them. And I would not be where I am without the discipline that they gave me because they held me accountable. I had, you know, my full-time job was being their nanny. They knew I had school, but I'm a workhorse and I'm overly uh, ambitious. So I went and got two more jobs on top of that, on top of going, being their nanny full time, going to school full time. I went and got two more jobs. And when those two jobs, if they ever interfered with my nanny schedule, I would have to pay for outside daycare. They Mm. took that out of my salary, which of course, as a 20 year old or 19, 20 year old, I'm like, oh, that's not fair. 
but I made a commitment to them. So anything outside of my commitment to them became my responsibility. Um, And it just gave me um, a great training ground for just really being responsible because I'm, I'm living under their roof. They see everything I'm doing. And I didn't want to disappoint them because they had been taking chances on me since I met them. And, and it was important for me to uh, be a good steward to them as they had been to me when I was a kid. So Michigan was good for me. I still consider it a second home. I really mm-hmm. do. Like Michigan was good to me. I like, you know, I don't go back often, but I have family friends there that treat me like family as if I'm blood. Like, you know, Michigan, Detroit is dangerous, but it's a lot of love in that city too. Absolutely. They go hard. They go hard they for go people hard. they love. They, that is the truth. Um, so how long were you there before you made that that decision? Like, I'm going to New York. So I already knew I was going to New York even before mm-hmm. I moved there. Um, actually, in my sophomore year of college, I didn't even know what subletting meant, but I called myself subletting an apartment. I didn't even know that term. And I'm like, okay, I have this apartment. Uh, I got my bartending license. I had a family member that said, oh, I can get you a job at Lord. What was Diddy's place called back in the day? What was that place? Uh, the Shark Bar? No, not the Shark Bar, but whatever. Oh. Diddy's, he had like, he had a location, Justin's, Justin. Oh, Justin's, yes. I'm, t- I'm thinking about when he got into a fight at the Shark Bar, which Combat, Combat Jack talked about, when everybody in the industry used to hang out there and he beat okay. somebody with like a first generation uh, cell phone. But I digress. Justin, the Justin, place that he actually owned. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I caught myself running away. Like, I'm, I'm going to New York. I'm not going to tell Mama to get there. So, uh, you know, family talk. So, I, I was, it was like allegedly my last um, night at my mama's house. I came home for the weekend. I tell you, in the middle of the night, that lady came and jerked the covers off of me over my dead body. You go to New York. I mean, it was so dramatic and I was so scared. Like, I'm like, okay, forget it. I'm not going to New York. So I, I, I mean, the seed was planted from the time she let me go at 13. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I started working at Mac in Michigan um, and, you know, I just thought it was fun. Like, I loved makeup. I loved how, like, you know, different they were and gothic and that was kind of my style back then. So I'm like, oh, I, I really want to work there. So, I was interviewing for Banana Republic in the mall and I was like, okay, this is a new Mac counter that just opened. I, I really feel like it opened the same weekend I moved to Michigan. Mm-hmm. And so I had stopped there when the counter was finally open. I'm like, okay, I'm going to stock up on my old baby and my chestnut. So the manager noticed that I knew the names of the product. And she's like, oh, what are you doing in the mall? I'm like, oh, and I'm applying for a job at Banana Republic. Just had an interview. And she was like, well, why don't you come work here? And I'm like... I've been waiting on this opportunity for like five years, but they always told me I tried when I was in Charlotte in college. I tried when I was in Winston and they were just always like, oh, you have to have so much experience and you don't have any experience. And it was just, it was hard in the beginning days of Mac um, with no experience. And so that was like music to my ears. It took me like three months to interview. It was like so many interviews, but they ended up hiring me. And I found out that if you work for them for a year, you can transfer anywhere. Mm. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's what I'm going to do. So I stayed in Michigan for two years. um, And then I, you know, I started interviewing for jobs. And I came to New York um, for a series of interviews. I think I interviewed at like six different locations in every damn borough. Because I didn't know, like, what's the difference? Like, it's in New York. I'm going to interview. They have an open spot. Um, Didn't think about proximity to where you're going to live. Right. So I ended up getting all every 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 manager that interviewed me 
accepted the position, like offered me the position. But I wanted to work at a Mac store because I hadn't never had that experience. And of course, that was in Garden City, Long Island. Mm. And I was live I was gonna be living in Staten Island. Now on Google Maps or whatever kind of maps we had back then, it said it was like 30 minutes away. Like, no big deal. Girl, it used to be two to five hours to get to work on the Belt Parkway, which was Uh, like hell. But, you know, that's how I got to New York. So you did the commute in the beginning? I did. My mama gave me her car. I did the commute. You know, then I started meeting people that lived in Long Island. And a couple of nights a week, if I had an early shift, I would stay at their house. But it was just like hell. I would get flat tires all the time. Like I literally would leave my house four hours before my shift, even though the Google map said it only takes 30 minutes, but you just never know on the Belt Parkway what's going to happen. And that was just so stressful for me on top of the fact, I don't even know how much the Verrazano costs now, but Mm -hmm. it was out of my league even then, back then. But um, Mac was good to me, you know, within the first month or so of me working there, I got offered an industry job. I did not even have a makeup kit because I didn't, I just thought it was a job while I finished school, right? So um, I didn't know that you could make a living doing makeup outside of a makeup counter. But that one paycheck um, was bigger than I'm in the one day's work was bigger than what I made in a week full time at Mac. And I'm like, oh, I'm a makeup artist. I remember calling my daddy saying like, I just made like three thousand dollars today. Like this is I'm going to do this, daddy. This is what I'm going to do now. I'm not going to no, I'm not going to finish my degree. I'm not going to go to culinary school. I'm just I'm a makeup artist. And he was like. He probably still thinks, like, what are you doing? <laughs> probably, but that's parents. But, okay. you know, we, we we get into the mechanics on this show. So what what part of the industry was that first job in? Was it print? Was it TV? What was it? Was it? Music. it was the music business. Okay. Um, it was a music industry job. I forget what record label it was, but it was a big paycheck. And I mean, to me, it was a big paycheck. And I'm just like, this is amazing. And I just got the itch. I just remember feeling butterflies and excitement and just felt great. And I'm like, oh my God, I can do this. I can really do this. And, you know, so I ended up getting more freelance work. And, you know, after like one year of working there, I'm like, I can do this on my own. I'm making more money than I'm making at this makeup store. And um, I went on my own. What year was this? This was uh, 03. Okay. I went on my own and um, the phone stopped ringing. Why does that always happen? It's like when when you don't, it's not the main thing. Phone's ringing off the hook. The minute you're like, you know what? This is working. I'm looking at the numbers. Because, you know, abundance attracts abundance. Exactly. When there's lack or when there's a mind of lack, a, a mind of worry, a mind of there's not enough, then money doesn't flow. But when you keep an abundant mindset and you know that money is flowing, it comes to you. And, you know, and I say this, the analogy I say is back in the day in my twenties, when we would go to the club, knowing we have no money for drinks, nobody would offer us a drink. When we had our money for drinks, everybody would offer us drinks. The bartenders, the girls, the boys, everybody. It's just like, you know, money attracts the money. Abundance attracts abundance. So the phone stopped ringing. And I'm like, oh my God, I didn't have a plan. It was a very hasty, irresponsible decision to go on my own. I did not have it thought out. I, it was ego. It was, I don't want to be tied down to a nine to five. It was not well thought out at all. And I realized that my freelance life came from the connections I made at that store. I I wasn't even in New York long enough to decide I can do this on my own. 
I didn't even know enough people to decide I can be a freelancer on my own. But because I made more money freelancing while I was having a part, I mean, a full time job, I just thought I could do it on my own. But that was just being young and naive. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. So, job. so where'd you end up? Like when you decided, OK, this is not this I is ended not up at me. Bobby Brown. I okay. ended up with Bobby Brown on 59th Street in, in 59th Street in Bloomingdale's and um, was which was a far cry from from Mac. So I had to change my whole look. I had to take out my face piercings, my tongue piercings, my chin piercing. You know, Mac, anything goes. Bobby Brown, they were like, boo, you're going to have to turn it down. And I'm like, okay, y'all are paying me double what Mac pays. I could totally take out these piercings. I don't have to wear goth makeup, like totally fine. Um, and, um, that was a very hard job for me because I'm, I don't think I'm a salesperson, even though Mm -hmm. I close deals all the time. I'm just not forcing people to buy anything. So that was a stressful job, but it paid well. It was a different environment. It showed me artistically a different aesthetic that I did because I was just way too over the top with my looks at Mac and I didn't understand what natural makeup was. And I needed that balance. Um, And I also needed that financial security that I got from Bobby Brown because it was a good paying job. And this is like 2004 or five, 2004, maybe 2003, 2003. I worked there from 2003, 2005. It was really good money. I think I was making like $28 an hour. That's a lot of money back then. Absolutely. Hell, I'll take that now in a pandemic. <laughs> a lot of people will, especially because this government can't decide yeah. what they want to do with this like, stimulus package. Right. So um, it was good for me, um, but it was a stressful job because they, you know, it was sales, sales, sales. It was all about that. But um, during that time, uh, my old coworker at Mac got a on she was a makeup artist but she got an on-air camera job and um her daughter was like a childhood model actress and her daughter's agent got her this job and that job ended up being ambush makeover on fox tv and she was Mm. like come on the road with me and um you know be my makeup artist and i'm like okay and so that was my first experience working in tv and i fell in love with it like oh my god there was not enough hours in the day we would work 20 hours days for like eight days straight. And I never felt tired. Like it was always just like fun and interesting. I was learning something new. And I, and I the first time I went on the road with her, um, it was on my two week vacation. And so I ended up, you know, going back to work. And it was just after experiencing that traveling. And I was like, I'm really going back to a makeup counter. This is very like, no, this doesn't feel right. So then, of course, I was miserable. Um, you know, doesn't compare to the camera crew, the planes, you know, being in a different city. Um, so I'm miserable and I'm just like, okay, this is not the life for me. There's no way I can go back to working at a regular makeup counter after working for Fox TV on a hit show. Um, so I start planning my exit strategy because, you know, this job is stressing me out. Like it's not about the creativity and I'm a creative person before anything. Um, and it wasn't about being creative, it was about numbers and sales and cutthroat. And I was just like, this is not the life for me. I don't care if I'm making good money and have health insurance and a 401k. This is not the life I want. So I, I felt that my and my my old boss, Nadia, I love you, but you know, you gave me hell. You may listen to this podcast. She challenged me. It weighs often like kind of like my god sister did that I lived in Michigan, but it was just too much. Like 
you're challenging me too much. And I feel like she was about to fire me because my sales were low. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I had, I had an opportunity to have breast reduction surgery and, um, it's a health risk, right? Because I, I, I work on my feet all day and these boobs are making it hard for me and my back is hurting. So, you know, I told her I have to have this, uh, emergency surgery. I have to have a breast reduction. The doctor says, you know, it's affecting my health. And so I took an extended leave of time uh, and I had the surgery. And a week later, I went back on the road with Ambush Makeover. And I had, I had, I had like two months out of work. Then my, then my doctor gave me another month out of work. And then I gave them my two weeks notice while I was on disability. So oh, wait. I never went back. Okay, hopefully the statute of limitations, statute of limitations has passed. Yeah, yeah. um, And you're not the first creative, you know, person in the industry to talk about collecting benefits while building a career. But you were on the road. I was. Collecting disability. Yeah, I was on the road making good, good money. Like what I thought was good money at Bobby Brown was nothing compared to what I made in a week at Bobby Brown is what I made in a day on the road with this show. And I didn't have to spend any of my money. Right. Because at that, you know, you're on the roads, you're getting per diem or what they're, have you. They're giving you per diem. They're putting, you're paying for your flights, your your hotel, your food, your meals. I didn't have to spend any money. So my checks were lovely. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you game the system. I'll, right. I'll say that. Yeah. For, for a couple of months. Um, get the extension, then give you a two week notice. Now you feel prepared this time, you know, financially and like. Prepared. It's like. The number one show on Fox TV. We had just finished season two. We're going up for season three. And the and the numbers were great. Like we were doing good and sweeps week. It was amazing. And then we got a phone call a week before we were supposed to go back on the road. The show was canceled. The show is canceled. So I got I got almost two years out of this show. I mm-hmm. almost got two years out of this show, but it's like when you get that height of success, it, it is, especially in your 20s, when you get that height of success, there's no way that you can even think, in my mind at least, I'm not going down from here. It's only up from here. Like, that's how my mind was thinking. Like, I, there's no way I can go back. I'm like, I'm in TV. I'm making connections. Like, and I was even on the road. I was the connect the dot person. Like, mm-hmm. every city we went to, I was the, the connect the dot person. Like, I knew somebody in every city already. I knew how to meet people in every city. So I was like, yeah, there's no going back from this. I'm on a hit show on Fox TV. And we got that call and I had to eat crow. Yeah, it was, uh, it was humbling to say the least. Uh, It was, it hurt like hell, especially hurt for my friend who was, you know, a star on the show. Mm -hmm. It was very painful for us because we were just excited. They had just told us the numbers are great. We're going on the road in a week and it was canceled. Nothing is ever promised. And especially in TV, nothing is ever promised, you know, and it's just like you can never get too comfortable. Um, And that was hard for me because now like it was hard for me as a behind the scenes makeup artist. Imagine how she fit as an on-air talent now that she's being treated like a star everywhere she goes. And now you thinking about, you might have to go make work at a makeup counter again after right. being on TV for the last two or three years. Like, so if it was hard for me, I can't even imagine what it was for her. And yeah, we had to go back to makeup counters. And here, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I hate when people get on the internet and try to shame 
folks who've had some level of fame, but now have a regular job. I'm like, how much do you think these people like made, right? Like it, we're working in the industry and you can have notoriety and you can have name recognition and not have secured the wealth to never have to work another job again. And I think that's a huge misconception that people have. Like just because you're on TV doesn't mean you have a nest egg that's going to last you, you know, for the foreseeable future. You can live off the interest. It's a job like, you know, anywhere else. And when you get to a certain level, yes, where you're commanding a scale that's insanity, right? That you you never, you may never have to go back to a job like that. But for most people- I mean, even Gabrielle Union said it and people were getting on her during this pandemic. It's like, you know- people, actresses might lose everything because the more money you make, most people, they start buying things on that level, not thinking about like, okay, this is a show I'm on for right now, but that doesn't mean this is going to last two, three, four seasons, you know? So it, it was, it's interesting. Um, and even I've dealt with it with my siblings as my, you know, I am, I would like to think I'm my mom's favorite child. And yes, she does brag on me a lot. And my siblings, up until the last, I would say, 10 years have kind of been like, you ain't all of that that mama said you are. Mm. You know, like, you you know, you still call home for help. You still need our prayers. It ain't been but 12 years that I haven't called home for money. You know, mm-hmm. there have been times that I had to ask my parents for money. And I remember both of my sisters saying to me at different times, you act like you all of that. You work around mm. celebrities. You work with celebrities. Why do you need mom and daddy's help? Because mm. they what they are to what I am or what I am to what they, you know, it's just like, just because I work for them doesn't mean I'm in the same financial bracket as them. Just because I go to dinner with them doesn't mean I'm in the same financial bracket as them. And it wasn't until both of my sisters individually came to New York and saw my grind and my work ethic and what it took and what I made happen with $5 that they both individually, and I'm sure neither one of them have this conversation with each other, but each of them came to me and said, I'm sorry for judging you. I'm sorry for not seeing how hard you work. And, and it literally, I never had good relationships with my sisters. We're all completely different. Um, grow, you know, different and our age brackets are kind of different. Um, but it changed my relationship with my sisters. Mm-hmm. And now they're my best friends. Like them seeing my life in New York, not what mama said it was, not, you know, because mama always came to New York to visit, right? But not what mama said I was doing in New York. Of course, mama's not going to go home and say, ooh, we had to share a turkey sandwich from the bodega today. She's not telling that story. You know, she's telling right. the good parts of what she saw me do. But it wasn't until my sisters individually came to New York to visit me for them to have a different respect for me and perspective of really what I was going through to make it in New York. Right. And it's, there's this proximity to wealth and proximity to fame that people equate with like a, a level of arrogance that you don't even have, right. Or self-importance. You just happen to work around these people and they equate that with always having money. But the, the, the other dirty secret is that there are a lot of people that you and I, you know, both know right now who have notoriety today and live in paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. Scrambling, especially now. And, you know, people, when they ask me, why did you get out of, you know, entertainment? I said, because it was more money and other things. Yes. And they can't believe that. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, my entertainment clients were the brokest clients. Yes. 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 That's why, you know, it, after going through this pandemic, Delisha, like, and I love TV. I have such an affinity for TV. And I think I will always try to get so uh, shows sold. I don't know that I really want to be involved 
in the entertainment industry anymore. Mm-hmm. It comes with a lot of um, expectation, a lot of stress, and a lot of bull that Oh my gosh. For the amount of money that I make, that I could make the same amount of money without all of that stress. And, you know, pretend- And there's a, a ton of backbiting and yeah. bad-mouthing you and mischaracterizing oh, yeah. things. And We've seen that firsthand. I don't know yes. if part two of our story. Yeah, the, we're going to get into that in part two well, as much as you can. We won't throw anybody out there and air them out. But um, seen a lot. <laughs> seen a lot. So- mm-hmm. You end up back. And what's so crazy to me listening to this is this is all before we met, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Which is why we're going to have to do a part two because okay. I know every, that's a whole other episode, right? When like technique was thought about and yeah. created and materialized. But this is literally all pre our introduction to, you know, each other. And you had done these amazing things. Um, but was thinking about the next chapter, next phase, mm-hmm. and the next, you know, kind of reinventing. But um, so you come back, you end up working back at counter. So, you know, I had to eat crow, like I said, mm-hmm. because I, I didn't give Mac two-week notice. I basically said, forget y'all. Like, I, I'm bigger than y'all. I don't need y'all. I didn't give them two weeks notice. So, I didn't. I mean, I gave uh, Bobby Brown two weeks notice on disability. So, did I really come back to the store? No. You know, so I had to, like, really humble myself and go back to the people that I should on and thought that I would never need again. And thank God for God's grace and favor that they still saw something in me that they gave me another chance to let me come back. And I never went back full time to any of these jobs. So I I ended up just like freelancing for a bunch of different makeup counters. Like every day I was at a different counter. And I remember, I don't even think they're around anymore, but Face Stockholm, they looked at my resume and they were like, oh, we think you're too overqualified for this job. We don't want to hire you. And I get that because if you see TV credits and music credits and celebrity credits, do you really want to hire this person to work at your counter and take you serious? But I knew I needed that paycheck. And I remember her telling me that. And I remember being, I don't know, I was at my parents' house at the time. And I would just remember standing up on the couch, like, I knew I needed this job. And I'm like, this is a big mistake if you don't hire me. I'm right for you. I can't even picture you doing that. No, I did. Like, it's like, I don't, like, especially being back at my parents' house, I'm like, I need a security freelance job so I can go back to New York. Um, But, and they did, and it worked. Um, And it worked. And, you know, it, it kept me sustained, but it, it was hard. I was miserable working at these makeup counters. Miserable. But I wanted to be in New York and this was my trade and this is my craft and it paid a decent wage and I could pay my bills with it. But I, I, I still thought it was beneath me that I mm-hmm. did what I had to do. You know, it was what I knew how to do. But did you have a nest egg coming off those two seasons or those two no. years? <laughs> yeah. Now we, we covered earlier how they were paying all the expenses. No, I did so, not. Okay. But, okay. So yes, they paid all the expenses, but entertainment checks take 30, 60, 90 days to yes. go up. So yeah, I would get $15,000, $20,000 checks. But if I'm three to six months behind on bills, then what is that? You're paying catch up the whole time. Absolutely. So if, if, if I would have been paid every two weeks or even once a month, Yes, I would have had a nest egg. But when you're robbing Peter to pay Paul and paying ketchup the whole time, no. And I didn't have a good grasp on savings. And I realized that it, it's not impossible and it takes a different type of discipline to save when you don't know when the check is going to show up. 
Yes. At Bobby Brown, I lived off a of half of my salary. Mm-hmm. And in six months, I had $15,000 saved, saved up because I was making double what I made at max. So, and, and my bills were low at the time. So I would literally walk to work. I had a, a family friend who had a rent subsidized apartment. I think he charged me $300 a month to rent a room. Right. And I mm-hmm. was walking distance from Bobby Brown. I'm like two or three mile walk, but it was damn near on the same street, but just mm-hmm. three miles down. Oh, well, so 2040, yeah, if he, if I lived in the 90s and Bloomingdale's is on 59th Street, so about three miles, we'll say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would walk to work. I would take the bus there and I would walk home and I would take my lunch to work. And because I knew that he was only letting me live with him for, to get on my feet. It wasn't mm-hmm. like long term and it was in the project. So I didn't really want to live there anyway. <laughs> so, you know, so, it was, so yes, when I knew how much I was making, it was a, I, I knew how to save. I had, I still to this day have not grasped really how to save consistently, not knowing how much I'm going to make. Yes. Which I, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the piece about um, production companies and networks and all that stuff, because they pay you when they want to pay you. Yeah, they do. Like, and, you know, and then they now just a little legal t- tidbit for people. Then some get crazy about we're not paying you unless you have a loan out corporation or an LLC or something else. So there are a lot there's a lot of uh, red tape to get your money um, and there's nothing you can do. But wait, they hold all the cards. I think um, it's going to change. I think they are changing. Not fast enough to protect our artists um, and and us as freelancers. I don't. I don't. I guess I'm not a freelance anymore. You're the but, boss, honey. Yeah, I am. Right? <laughs> but but you know, I, I I still think about how it affects our 65 contract workers. You know, mm-hmm. and, and so we try to watch the laws pretty diligently, hoping that they change in the favor. Because the sooner the sooner they they get their money, the sooner we get our money. Right. Right. Um. But. No, so no, I did not save money when I was making a lot of money at Fox. I didn't because the checks just didn't show up when I needed them to. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't want to make excuses for not saving because saving is saving, right? But that was my reason for not being able to save when I was making more money than I had ever made before because I just never knew when the checks were going to show up. Right, right. So you come out of that, you're freelancing at these various counters, but was there still the drive to say, I got to get back oh, yeah. to to TV or, or what oh, happened? And I still did. I still worked mm-hmm. in TV, but it wasn't like a long-term show. It would be like mm-hmm. playing. And that's why I chose going back to work and makeup freelancing, because if I got a industry job, then I could turn down the freelance without any you know, repercussions or not keeping my obligation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I still kept working in TV, um, but it just wasn't consistent. TV wasn't consistent, but I still kept my, uh, you know, so during this time I started, um, party promoting with Jareem. Oh, Jareem. <laughs> this is before you guys met, but he, he introduced me to the nightlife in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and I, we were called Silky and Luscious. <laughs> That was our name. That was our club promoting name. Okay. Silky and Luscious. Silky and Luscious, though. Okay. Yeah, we made good money. We made good money. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, let's say, you know, we would do parties three nights a week, invite models out, invite industry people out. Um, and well, I don't know, we would make like $1,500 each party. So not bad, you know, but then you start buying bottles, t- getting car services for the model because you want the good people to show up to your yes. table. It, it, but, but I will say, 
that me and Jareem still got a name in these streets with a partner. Okay. <laughs> okay. We did the damn thing, but he taught me about that. So that was like my other, it was always a hustle. I would, um, I would write people's bios. I would do people's resumes, even though I ain't seen a resume in so long, I wouldn't even know how to do it anymore. Um, you know, I would just do, I would bartend sometime, you know, I would just do whatever I could legally to, to make a living. You know, did you Starbucks at one point? Oh well, we haven't gotten there yet. Okay, yeah. well, let's 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 table that because I remember Starbucks was definitely on the journey. Oh yeah, Starbucks. Starbucks saved my life. Okay, Starbucks was good to me. And so you, know, you the, yeah, go ahead. No, Starbucks was good to me. Um, it was really good to me because um, it allowed me to do my industry work to get health insurance. I didn't make a lot of money, but it was, I knew how much I was making so I could budget, you know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't like, okay, okay. You made $5,000 today. You don't know when the money going to show up. If I made $50 a week from Starbucks, at least I knew what I could do when that money showed up. And, and, and that consistency allowed me to pay my bills. Um, Starbucks was good to me. So I would work and I am not a morning person. So this, I want to pat myself on the back for this because I, I'm not a morning person and I worked at Starbucks, I would have to get up at 2.30 in the morning to be at work at 4 a.m. Um, and I would be finished with them. I could either work from 4 to 8 or 4 to 12, but then I can go go and do industry work. You know, I could go do my other stuff. So, you know, I would get it in. I would work seven days a week from like 4 to 12. And if I wanted to do some extra shifts and if another store in town needed some extra work, I would go and do that. Even when my dad got sick with cancer, I worked for Starbucks and I was able to go home to Virginia and work for Starbucks. Like it was good to me. And I had health insurance. Starbucks, if, if you want to sponsor our show, just, just holler at us. Uh, <laughs> you just got a whole commercial Starbucks for free. Good to me. And, you know, I remember um, Russell Simmons coming in there one day and we like, so many people did come in in the Starbucks. I worked the, the main star work that was near Grand Central Station. And he was just like, what are you doing here? So many people did that. One lady had hired me to do a film and her, and I know you know this story, Delisha, but she came, she hired me to do a film several years before I started working at Starbucks and the film fell through, but I had a binding contract with her. Her funding fell through. Mm. And so she wasn't able to do the film and she thought I was a big time makeup artist at the time. So she kind of felt guilty. But when she saw me working at Starbucks, it's like her mouth fell open. Mm-hmm. By the end of my shift, she came back to the store and she said, I work in this neighborhood. I'm going to bring you money every paycheck. She gave me $200 that day. And she mm-hmm. said, until I pay off the contract that didn't go through, I will be coming back and giving you money. Do you know what that $200 meant to me? When I right. that, like that was done and gone and over with, like it was two years before I started at Starbucks. And, you know, so, so many blessings came from that. Like, she couldn't believe I was working there. And I guess she just, I don't know if she felt guilty or what, but I appreciated her for that. That $200 meant so much to me. And every, I, I think she was a professor or something, but every month she would come back and give me like $100 until she paid off the contract that I was supposed to have on this movie that we were supposed to do. And this is why I'm, I'm a huge believer in the, the four agreements, one of which is be impeccable with your word. You know, uh, we have this. I just keep it. I keep it right here with me all the time. I open it every <laughs> single day. I just had to show you my book. So you had to show me. I was like, where is she going? <laughs> <laughs> so be impeccable <laughs> with your word. And oftentimes we, 
it's not even intentional. And it happens a lot in this industry. People sell you on an idea that like it's going to happen. This is the big break and something goes wrong. Something falls through and people are just like, man, I'm sorry, but we all move on. There's young people owe me money right now. Yeah. I know people owe you money, right? I know, and, yeah. I and might owe you like, money too. <laughs> You don't owe me anything. This, that's the sister relationship. Paid it. Jesus paid it all. <laughs> um, but, you know, not realizing that b- being impeccable with your word might be saving somebody else's life. Yes. And it may not be in the form that you originally sold it to them in, but just meeting your obligation. Right. And I wish more people in this industry did that. Right. I, they're, they're, I remembered her. I don't remember. If I passed her on the street, I still would not. Hmm remember her, but I, I pray our, our paths cross again because, I, I mean, it's a testimony that I use all the time and she didn't have to do that. Even right. after seeing me work in Starbucks, she didn't have to do that. Right, exactly. You know, her so, project fell through too. So she didn't make money off of it, but, you know, she, uh, well, it was a blessing. Mm-hmm. And it's also like, I think the other lesson here, here is sometimes we go into hiding when our, our lives don't look like we thought they would and Pride gets in the way and ego, um, but never knowing where the blessing is coming from, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes in the humility, the blessing is there of the thing that just gets you over, yes. next, you know, through the season. And and I, we all struggle with that. I do, right? It was yeah. I made the transition away from full time entrepreneurship. I went into hiding for like two years, you know, well, because I, I, I just, went into hiding for like five. I'm just yeah, yeah. So I, I'm speaking from experience, but. Um, sometimes being able to to hold your head up and say, this is what I have to do today, that God will meet you there. And the, the blessings to yeah. help you sustain through that season will find you. Um, so we're going to, we're going to split this into two. I, we already said that that was going to happen. Um, that this had to be well, two episodes. Yeah. Uh, God is so much more that I want to say, yes. you know, in terms of, you know, you know, people often, Irie, my ex, we mm-hmm. were talking yesterday and, and he was just like, you know, I used to get so mad when you would take jobs for free. And I feel like people were taking advantage of you. You have so many favors out here owed to you. And I'm like, actually, I don't. Because whether I'm, I, 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 I know that everything I do, and I believe this and I confess this, is sold on good ground. Right. Just because the person doesn't physically bless me back doesn't mean I'm not getting the blessing. You don't always get the blessing where you plant the seed. It's Sometimes true. it sprouts up 100 miles away, 500 miles away. But it always comes back to me. I never feel like anything I've done for free or out of the goodness of my heart hasn't come back to me in some amazing way. It's always turned into either a in a relationship that I needed or wanted, uh, a job. It's always turned into something good, even if the person meant for it to fuck me. It did not. Right. Absolutely. It did not. So, you know, our steps are ordered, girl. They're absolutely ordered. And you preach it now, which is why I told you you're also a ministry, even if you don't want to, you don't want to claim it. You don't want to accept that, but it's true. Um, so we've talked about, uh, we talked about a lot of things from Harris Teeter to school, to nannying, to bartending, to several makeup counters, to working in TV. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting a lot of things. To Starbucks, many different chapters, right? I want to set this up because we're laying the groundwork for the next chapter of your life in the next episode. But from the time you came to New York, you really really said, all right, I want to really consider this technique, agency, model, or concept. How many years was it? Well, the name technique existed before 
I came to New York. And um, my best friend, Monique Coney, it's a play on both of our names. Mm -hmm. um, Her and I were both on punishment from our parents for not excelling in college. So we were kind of on punishment when we met each other, both of us taking a hiatus from our college life. And she was my manager at um, Nine West. And we soon found out that we both had aspirations to move to New York. And she's like, I have family there. I already have a place for us to stay. We both love fashion and entertainment. And so while we were at work one day, we came up with this name, Technique. Um, So in our mind, we were going to go into the fashion business and have a a fashion magazine because I'm a writer. She's a thorough researcher. She loves fashion and beauty, maybe more than I do. And so the name had already existed and I just, we just didn't know what we were going to do with it. So basically she moved to New York a year before me. I moved to New York a few months before 9-11. And um, of course I'm like, I made the wrong choice. Right. The world is ending. New York doesn't exist anymore. It just felt like the wrong timing. But that's also at a time that the publishing industry took a major crash. Mm -hmm. So even with our lofty goals of thinking that we could start a fashion magazine, not understanding that you ain't starting a magazine without major funding, period, um, the name existed. So Technique has had several iterations. That was our first lofty goal idea that really went any, didn't go anywhere, but an idea. Um, But the first chance we had a chance to use technique was when I had two friends that were NBA athletes and we both um, loved sports and they gave us a chance to work for them. And I used my um, resources as a makeup artist in the industry to kind of broker deals for them. So that was the first iteration of technique. And I would say that took off in 2006. Mm-hmm. into 2005 and lasted until 2007. And Josh Howard, I love you. You know, this story is not a secret, but you know, it was a scary time for him. It's like survivor's remorse, right? Mm-hmm. That show survivor's remorse. He got a huge deal. He was banging it out the water in the NBA. And I took his success as my success and mm-hmm. my ego exploded because people were literally kissing our ass because they knew we had direct access to him. And I thought, oh, this is my way out of having to do makeup. It's not that I didn't love makeup anymore, but I wanted more power and prestige. And one thing about being a makeup artist back then, especially now makeup artists are superstars, right? Right. Back then, makeup artists were to be seen and not heard. Don't open Mm -hmm. your mouth. Don't have an opinion. And I'm too vocal to know that that could have been my life long term. Yes, I abided by, you know, that, you know, ideology of how a makeup artist should act on set. But I knew that that wasn't completely fulfilling to me. And I'm like, I have way too much to offer. I have too many resources. I know that I can help these productions in in a bigger way than making a woman or man feel pretty and cute. And so that's, you know, that's how we started Technique and how it gained its first legs um, was working for athletes. And it was short lived. Um, It didn't last longer than two years. Um, But I learned so much about my work ethic. I learned so much about my negotiation skills. I learned so much about who was really for me and who was just around for the glitz and the glam. I had more friends than I can count. And I think I kind of knew it wasn't really because of me, but I took advantage of it. And it was very humbling. Like I really thought that life was over when he quit me. Mm. And he decided, and it was probably the best decision for him because did I really have experience in being a marketer in PR? No, I knew people and I knew how to get 
done, but I didn't really have any like formal training in that area. And he made a decision that wasn't in my best interest. And it was heartbreaking because I had a personal relationship with him. It was Mm -hmm. a childhood friend. And it just felt like, well, at the time it felt like the darkest period, but we know I've had a darker period since then. Um, It felt really dark and it just, it, I was embarrassed and I just didn't know how I was going to pull myself up by the bootstraps. And I just didn't understand how I could work that hard for someone and for them just to drop me without a conversation. Right. That was very, very hard, but I don't regret it because it, it, I needed that to happen. I needed mm-hmm. to build that backbone. And it it took me a long, not as long as the last dark period, but it took me a while to come out of that. It took me a while to come out of that, but I needed that. But I knew that I could start a company based on what I built for from working for him. Mm-hmm. So it gave Absolutely. me confidence in that way. Like, you know, me and Monique both still had like full-time jobs. Um, and we, one of my really good friends, I'm sure you've met Irvin on 29th street, right. Mm -hmm. Gave us keys to his office. We would go there after work, whatever time we got off, we would literally work in there till the sun came up. We wouldn't even have money to, to, for cabs to get back to my house, which wasn't even that far. We would get on the bus and get dressed and go back to work. Like there was just no stopping us. And I, I long for that feeling of not caring about sleep again because mm-hmm. I because I was so excited about what we were doing, you know. And I know it's not healthy to not sleep, but I was just so excited about what we were doing. I didn't care if I had to work a 10-hour day and still work on his projects to get it off the ground. It was it was a beautiful experience, but it was humbling at the same time. I remember going on a date with a man and um and I don't think I had told him that you know, that was my client, but it came on the news when he first signed, when Josh Howard first signed a $40 million contract. Mm-hmm. And when the bill came, you have, have I ever told you this story? No, you did not. I feel like I know where it's going, but go ahead. When the bill came, he slid it to me and said, if that's your client, you got this bill. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Oh, I can. I've had many an experience, especially in New York. When I can absolutely believe it. the bill to me? But yeah, it was humbling. It was a humbling experience. And I love my Josh. You know, we have made peace with that time period in our life. And he's amazing. Like, I love him so much. And I still believe in him like I did back then. Um, But it was it was heartbreaking for many, many years. And, you know, this all happens pre. So Technique, the first version of Technique Agency launched in 2012, right? So this was, we haven't even gotten to what everybody knows you for publicly, Um, which is why we're splitting this into two episodes for sure. So we met originally in 2009. That was the Irie era um, Mm -hmm. when you were were dating him. And I won't get into this episode because you have, you have something to do. So we're going to let you go. Um, We won't, but the next episode, we're going to get into how we met, um, how our lives kind of interlocked and intertwined. And um, yeah. And then we're going to talk about how you built the technique agency. Girl. (laughs) People have no, people see the 65 contractors that you have in this business and they see the technique, you know, the technique name and the credits and everybody you guys know and who you help and all that other stuff. They have no No. idea. (laughs) Get back up again. Get back up. <laughs> I mean, God, but we had to just get back up again, girl. It's just, it's been, it's oh, been a, it's been a ride. It's been a ride. Yes. So I'm 
I'm saving the describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. I'm saving that. Um, I'm saving everything. All yeah, the things. That's, like, that's yeah. It comes. Yes. I need to write it down so I don't forget it. Please don't forget because we know how you operate. Oh, so please, down. please document that. Um, but before I let you go, let's just tally the number of years. This is important for our, our audience to know. From when you first got to New York to when you split parted ways with, or he parted ways with you, with Josh, how many years was that? Um, I got to New York in 2001 and he parted ways with me in 2007. Okay. So that's six years. Then we talked to, go ahead. But then... 2000, we, he didn't apologize to me and we didn't have a conversation. I did not hear from him. Like we're talking about like, he never told me I was fired. <laughs> His lawyer told me I was fired. So from 2007, when did I go in to Texas to work for the Jakes? 2014? That, yeah, that was like 2014. So seven years passed and we didn't talk with no explanation, with no closure for seven years. We all have a story like that, too. Um, So, yeah, I don't know how much we're going to get into the Jake's era as well. But let's put a pin in that. Oh, we got (laughs) This is the most sister girl episode of this podcast I've ever recorded. Okay. All right. So let's pause here. Let's pause here. Okay. Yeah. 26ers, especially those of you who want to be in this industry. I know you are all in on Tacoa's story and I, people reach out to me all the time asking, you know, Tacoa, can you connect me? And most of them I don't because I know they're not really about it. Um, but I know many of you have aspirations, do what she does, which is many things that we haven't even touched on yet that people will never know that she's done. She's been instrumental in my career. She's the reason that I speak. Right. So we'll get into that as well. Um, but for now, if you like this episode, like, share, subscribe, tell somebody about it, but also come back for part two, because that's when we get into the real. That's when I enter the picture as a, oh, as yeah. a yes. cast member. Um, and we can talk about how she built this brand, this well-respected brand uh, known as Technique within the entertainment world as we know it today. I'm excited to continue this conversation. I am, too. Um that that the part of the story that we talked about today, I don't talk about often. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, you know, you kind of block things out to, but what a journey! It's been a journey, which is why I knew this was going to be two parts. So pause here, folks. Come back next week and hear the second part of this amazing, beautiful story that has built uh, a person who operates in strength, courage, and wisdom, who I love. And I just can't wait for you to hear the rest. But until then, you know what to do. Remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.